Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with other editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle. This week, in anticipation of the fifth annual Native and Indigenous Voices Collection at Health Promotion Practice Journal, we'll be doing a deep dive into one of the previous HPP papers of the year, which was titled Native American Youth Citizen Scientists Uncovering Community and Food Security Priorities, which was published in January of 2020. Enjoy. Today, we are joined by several folks First is Katherine Kim, and she's an associate professor at University of California, Davis in the Betty Irene Moore School of Nursing and in the School of Medicine, Department of Public Health Sciences. She focuses on how to design and apply technology to support collaboration among patients, community members, and healthcare organizations. We also have two more wonderful guests today. Lisa Moorhead-Hillman, do you mind introducing yourself? I'd be glad to. Yes, I'm a Kuduk tribal member, proud mother of six Kuduk tribal members. So all young people going out there ready to do their thing and wanting to do those things for the Kuduk people. My life is spent in education, in tribal sovereignty, working to protect intellectual property of my people, the Kuduk tribe in Northern California. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ashley, Michael, do you mind introducing yourself as well? Hello. I was born and raised on the Kruk ancestral land. I lived on the Klamath River my whole life, pretty much. And I'm a Kruk tribal member. My great-grandmother, Laverne Glaze, was a major influencer to a huge part of the tribe, and everyone looked up to her, so I fully give all my credit to her. Excellent. And thank you. We're so excited to have you all on the podcast today. And before we get started, Catherine Kim, would you like to make a dedication? Yes, we would like to dedicate this award and to recognize our colleague Grant Gilkison, a tribal member who led this project on behalf of the tribe with the Native Youth Citizen Scientists. We were saddened when he passed away last year but we wanted to recognize his tremendous influence on the youth of the tribe, on the collaboration with the universities involved, and on getting this work published and submitted and brought out into the world. So we just want to give credit and appreciation to our friend Grant Gilkison. Thank you so much. So the paper was on youth as citizen scientists, and Catherine Kim, if you could give us a quick summary of the paper and and kind of what this term means, that would be great to get us started. This paper really is showing a methodology and approach to how we can collaborate with youth in particular, but even more specifically with Native youth, to leverage the knowledge that they have from within their own communities and the ancestral knowledge that resides in the community that they may not know explicitly, right? But what it recognizes is that when you engage with community, 
and bring some research tools and methods from the university to the community and teach them how to use them, they can run with that and really deliver research that is so much more rigorous and impactful and insightful than outside university researchers could have done on their own. So this specific research project was focused on understanding the, the perceptions of the community about their food security, about health problems in the community, and what the community wanted to be able to do around those issues. So we took an approach of leadership development and research training. And we recruited this wonderful group of young people who at the time were all teenagers who wanted to lead this project, provided them this training, provided them the tools, and then watched as they conducted this amazing research and delivered you know, these really impactful findings that have made their way into the tribe's own strategy, that have made their way into the academic literature and has you know, gone far beyond in terms of disseminating you know, to other parts of the country that have learned from the model that they provided. Excellent, thank you for that quick summary. And it, it's such an interesting and fun idea of really utilizing youth. And I wanna know a little bit more about this partnership between youth and the tribe and the new university, these different, very different domains and how they really came together. Yeah, so this is, you know, at heart, so if you're in the academic side of, of the, the community, you would say, okay, this is a health promotion, you know, health services research project. It is gaining perspectives from the community. It uses methods of survey and in-person interview. And there is both a quantitative analysis you know, which is descriptive statistics and associations of different variables in that survey. And there's a qualitative element, which is photos of the environment, youth talking to community members to understand what they think about, you know, these various issues. So it's a mixed methods, health promotion, health services research study. So, you know, that's in and of itself interesting because we're learning a lot about the tribal communities in this Klamath Basin area, not just the Karuk tribe, but also, you know, other tribes that reside in the area, the, the Yurok and the, the uh, Hoopa and the Klamath tribes, because they all live, you know, in this region. But I think what is the most interesting part of this project is what we learned from each other. So there were several universities involved. We each had a principal investigator who kind of led the work at our universities. There were three tribes involved and there were principal investigators from each of the tribes. There were community organizations involved. And so there you know, were community members who were the PIs of their part of this project. So this was truly a collaborative where all of us brought our skills and our strengths and our knowledge. We all had equal say in our own parts of the project, but most importantly, the bulk of the funding actually went to the tribes because that's where the work was being done. That's where people were putting themselves out, you know, to learn new scientific methods, combine them with what they already knew from their own traditional and ecological knowledge and did the bulk of the work. So one of the things for us from the universities to learn is that where you put your, your funding recognizes what's important. 
And it was important for us to say, this is really a tribal project with universities helping out, with universities contributing parts, but it was being done by the tribes for the tribes in the tribal land. So there was sort of an equitable decision-making structure, but with the recognition where most of the work was going to be done is where most of the authority needed to be. I think the other interesting thing is this concept of, of citizen scientists. And in a similar way to how we developed the governance of this project, citizen science really recognizes that the members of the community and the scientists are on an even plane. There's not that the scientists somehow are better, smarter, you know, no more, but it recognizes that everybody has their expertise and everybody has their knowledge and we have to respect it equally. And we have to learn from the knowledge of you know, the partner. So citizen science really was myself from the university side, you know, Grant and Lisa from the tribal leadership side saying the youth are equal scientists collaborators with us and everything that, that they need to know about science needs to be given to them as knowledge and skills rather than us doing for them. Let have them be empowered with all of that and drive this project. And that citizen science approach is very different than the way most of our health research is done in, in this country. Yeah, thank you for defining that. And it sounds like there's this big piece of cultural wealth and in, in recognizing the knowledge that we all have and the expertise we all have in our own lives, as well as this piece of leadership and ownership and doing with rather than doing to folks, which is just so important. And like you said, putting the funding where it truly belongs and where the work is actually being done. And I'd love to hear a little bit more from you, Ashley, about being in the process and developing these leadership skills, because as she's mentioned, all of the resources and, and where the action is really happening is, is at this youth level. And so I want to know a little bit more about the role that you played because it was so important. In the beginning, we were handed an iPod and given this idea of what we were supposed to do. And it was really up to us to be able to go out into the community and be able to talk to people that wouldn't be usually talked to, like just some random person on the street next to the store, we would just go talk to them and ask them their opinion. So it was really just kids being able to do what we do and just randomly talk <laughs> and be able to learn from not only our community and be able to experience all these amazing things that the university had given us. And we traveled to other, other schools inside the community and actually led some classes and seminars on what we found in the community. And so we were actually teaching other youth what was going on. I must say, you know, Ashley, I wonder, because the iPod was such a, what people really wanted that iPod. In fact, we're, it was a, it was a yeah, big and thing. in fact, people called it the iPod project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was really fun. I just remember 
all that we would make signs and posters and it would literally say the Kruk Youth iPod Project. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was a little bit of a motivator for, for you all wanting, wanting to do it. But what you turned that into as a research tool was really great. The amount of research that we found was truly amazing because not only did I learn stuff that was happening in Wairika at the time, that I wouldn't know of happened because I never really would go travel up there. And they would know what was going on down in Orleans was just totally at the other end of the tribal spectrum. <laughs> and we were able to actually develop and learn some truly amazing things. And when we went and taught our findings to professors and other people like that at UC Davis, they were truly blown away at our findings. And from my point of view, I was just a little kid thinking we didn't do that much. But in the grown-ups' eyes, we were just doing something truly amazing. And I still thought of it as just a fun little thing. Let me give you an example of that, because I remember it was maybe two weeks before you all were coming down to UC Davis to give your talk. And we'd kind of gotten everything together. And I don't remember which of which of you said it, but one one of the youth said, oh, we, we had wanted to get to 250 interviews and we only got 212. Aren't they going to think that that's like a failure, like we didn't do well enough? And this is one of the things we know as researchers to get 212 interviews done in four weeks. They did it in four weeks. <laughs> you know, that they had no idea how amazing that was because in research, we cannot work that fast. Had we gone up and, you know, hung out at the store in Orleans, nobody would want to talk to us, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so it really was amazing. And to be able to share those results, you know, from 212 participants, what were their main concerns about health? And, you know, and one of them was the quality of the food you know, the food served at schools and people feeling they didn't have, you know, good opportunities to get physical activity and that they were not confident about their ability to, to get nutritious foods. Right? All those really important findings, were, you know, you all were able to share in this wonderful scientific talk that you gave, which was, you know, the first time any of you had given a scientific presentation. And then to to be, you know, like I said, to have the researchers blown away with what you found was just icing on the cake. It was an experience, truly. I remember just holding up my people with me and just not letting them fall down through anxiety and nerves. And <laughs> But yeah, through all of it, it never really did seem like work. It was just pure we were doing what kids do kids are natural scientists so why not just learn from the youth absolutely I love that and what really stuck to me right there is that it never felt like work and that as Catherine Kim was saying like we can't get easily over like 50 interviews in you know four weeks like that's just it's amazing the power of of working within a community and that, that trust that as researchers, if you're coming in to a community and you don't have, you haven't spent that time getting to know the community, building that trust and, and really meeting their needs, getting them excited about iPods. If you're not doing that work, then you're never going to get the research done and it's never going to be as deep and as powerful 
as if you truly engage with the community. And I wanted to touch on the health benefits of community-based participatory research. And, and we're talking about earlier, Catherine Kim, you were talking about, you know, if we're using research language, that's what we would call it, but really just engaging with the communities and how change outcomes are connected to grant funding and really building together using the community as the voice and, and how does that connect with grant funding? Yeah, you know, this, this process of community-based participatory research or this methodology and principles of community-based participatory research has been, you know, applied quite a bit in, in health promotion research and projects, but moving from a CBPR mentality to a citizen science mentality is, is newer. And so I think this paper and the work that we did is, is one of the examples of how you can really push research in this field forward with this new kind of approach. And I, you know, I'll give you an example that we've already talked about that the citizen science approach with the youth as the scientists gave them access to community members who would not have felt comfortable participating if this was done by outside researchers. But the youth also knew where to go find people and how to talk to them about this and why it was important. And nobody refused the youth because they were members of their own community and it was important to the youth. Right? Again, something that outside researchers would not have been able to really communicate effectively or know about what are the right ways to approach people. The third thing is even in the analysis you know, of, of the data, you know, I can run statistics and I can you know, pick what's an important question to answer and what do I think is important to, to display in the results but it would not have really represented the richness of the findings if the youth hadn't said, wait a minute, we wanna know this. We wanna know how it impacts that, right? They drove the questions we were answering. We were providing some of the technical assistance and doing the statistics. So I think what we're doing now is to be able to go to funders and say, this is why the research is so much better. This is why you know, we got such richer results and insights by using the citizen science approach than we would have had we just done an outsider research project. And the importance of that is the research findings themselves and the sustainability of the findings within the community. So in the paper, we talked about all of the things that came out of this project, the additional grants that the tribe got for the, you know, the, the school nutrition program, additional educational opportunities, you know, in the community, the community gardens, you know, the, the new institute they created, the, the citizen science project helped provide data that went into all of those grant opportunities, but they were to demonstrate it came from the community. It came from our youth being the scientists that generated this. And because of that, the tribe took it even further and saying, this is our program and we're gonna continue sustaining it through all these mechanisms. So I think that's an, maybe an unrecognized importance of citizen science. It is science and it's really good science, but if it comes from the community, it's so much more likely the community is gonna to wanna to keep it and you know, keep it growing and keep it sustained. And that's something that hopefully funders will will really value and, and want to continue to support. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it goes beyond just these community benefits that not only is it funding, you know, this good science, but it's funding the ideas behind the science and that 
that in fact is benefiting the community and not just researchers, not just moving folks forward in their tenure and whatnot. It's really a, a true piece of science and, and true collaborative work, which is really, really exciting. And Ashley, I wanted to, I know you've touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to talk about this whole youth understanding of their community and how you've been talking about how they knew who to talk to and how to talk to them. And I want to know a little bit more about your experience understanding what the health outcomes were in your community and within your own family. I did do a little extra research on my own side through like my senior project about the health and the decrease and increase and all that mumbo jumbo. But it really all just comes down to knowing who to talk to and who wouldn't be talked to. Because I know I went out of my way to go to the boonies to go find the old man in the mountain that didn't want to get talked to by anyone else. But he took the time to talk to us youth. And we were actually able to figure out what was going on with him and what was his input. And then we would go and do that to other people. And it was just more of us as youth getting out of our shells because we were all scared. We had never done any of this before. We were just, we thought we were hot shots and we were going to be cool going to school and all this stuff. But it really just took us getting out there, us doing all the research, us talking to random people that wouldn't be talked to and then involving other youth. I know that it wasn't just us youth that were a part of the project. I would take my siblings out with me and do the research just because we were going to go have fun and go talk to people and learn new things. And it was just pure enjoyment out of the whole thing. And like I said earlier, it never really felt like work. We were just having fun. I really like that you brought up how, how scary it was because I, I remember, you know, we would do these trainings and it was really fun because we would spend the whole weekend and, you know, we'd rent a house and some of the parents would be there and we'd be doing the training over the course of an entire weekend. And I remember when you all decided you wanted to do this survey, but do it as an in-person, you know, interview and collect the data that way. For some people, they were like, oh, this is no problem. I can go talk to people. But other people were really nervous about, wait, I have to actually like, you know, approach people and what do I say and how do I say it? And then I got to go through all these questions and what if they don't want to answer the question? You know, what do I do? And, and just being able to be in person and to practice those interviewing skills. And you saw, like you said, people came out of their shells that were nervous at the beginning and, you know, by the end of doing all these exercises and role plays, people were a little more comfortable. But even, even then, doing the interviews, we, you know, you were telling us, well, it's still a little nerve wracking until we really get out and keep doing it. But by the end of it, everybody was like, this is no problem. <laughs> we got this. <laughs> yeah, by the end of it, I was able to take my findings and go away from the project and go down to San Francisco State University and teach a class about the Kruk tribe and who we are, because none of them knew 
that there was any tribal members in California. And so to teach a teacher, a professor, and his class who were all older than me about my tribe and what I found as the youth leader during all these findings and being able to teach them about the health benefits and about the tribal government and about all this stuff they didn't know about. It was just, it truly came from this project of being able to just get out of my shell. Cause like Kathy said, I was that shy person who did not want to go out and talk to anyone. <laughs> and it led to me teaching a class at a university. So it truly is just learning and coming out of our shells. That is really amazing. And that the benefits of this project and benefits of investing in youth and, and really growing youth and giving them these skills to be successful in research, but also in professional aspects of their lives and, and also just meeting hard to reach community members and really listening is, is so exciting in that it's given, it's opened so many doors for you and provided so many opportunities as you continue to think about research and present and share your knowledge is super, super exciting. And the paper covers food insecurity in tribal communities. Lisa, I'd love to know more about why tribal communities are uniquely posed to address their own food insecurity issues in ways that are empowering and healthy. Can you tell me a little bit more? As we say in Kudu country, the people have been living here since the beginning of time. We were one of the first people, like our relations, the rocks, the stars, the moon, the fish, the acorns, everything in, in our natural world. And as such, we treat our relations with a respect that is born in in this true feeling of we're in this all together. This is from this point, I say, you know, there are unique position is in that we recognize, understand and respect that still to this day. We've had, as we all know, so many over a hundred years of, of uh, disconnect with our with our own ways in ways that haven't been uh, vilified or, or downright outlawed. We've lost so many of our ancestors from murder and from disease on and on. But we still, and we are very lucky as Kuduk people because we're so far away from the rest of civilization in the in these mountains and haven't had contacts you know until just not that long ago relatively speaking the Kuduk people still practice their ways and I'm going to say our ways as as one of the Kuduk people we know how to collect gather we know how to work the land to help it be more healthy and to give us more by us giving it more, intending to it. So knowing these ways of, of traditional science, uh, so to speak, or traditional knowledge, however you want to name it, we know that 
in working with our land, we can we can mutually benefit each other rather than causing further damage that's that's been going on for so for so long. So in this in this way, having this knowledge, understanding these ways, and understanding that we have to keep them alive despite the non-recognition by the non-native people. Keeping them alive, we can keep our food secure. Yeah, I think that there's so much culture and there's so much history to the way that you respect and understand the place that you live and that that really empowers you to be okay and find healthy and empowering ways for the future and to solve food insecurity issues. As keepers of our traditional knowledge and ways, we have been waiting so long for the Western world to catch up to the science of the indigenous peoples, understanding the true ways of taking care of this area and our relations, the waters and the, and, and the plants and the atmosphere, if we, if we wanna go there. So thinking of climate change. So finally we have Western science catching up and saying, wow, you know, so, these low intensity fires of the first peoples are actually really important rather than 150 years ago where people were some talking to you know our ancestors saying these fires are bad for the for the trees you see you know just the patronizing so literature and and the and the ridicule that you read is just astronomical and it and it makes you so angry but you turn that around and say, we held that despite all of that. We kept that knowledge. We passed it on from generation to generation. And now that Western world is saying, oh, what do we do? We've really messed things up now. Here we are poised to be able to help get this world back in balance the way that we've been trying to do for since time immemorial, and which we do every year through the world renewal ceremonies called Pikyawish. Thank you for sharing that deep history and unfortunate patronizing way that your tribal community has been spoken to and in the way that Western civilization doesn't acknowledge these traditional ways of knowing. And I think that it, it makes it ever more important how, how amazing and powerful the work that you all are doing in order to combat food insecurity is and that you're able to, you have this historical knowledge and you've held on to it regardless of what, you know, Western civilization has said or ignored about it. And I want to know, this paper is connected to a larger food project for the tribal community. I'd love to know a little bit more about that larger project in, in this farm to school in connection to the Department of Education. Well, um, I'm glad to talk about that. So with this initial project of which the citizen science was a part, there were many different objectives. Some of them were to build a native curriculum for the K through 12. Um, So talking about our native foods, food security, food sovereignty issues. Then there was a project that was talking about having people go out into the area, so trying to help the land and bringing it into a way that it could be most productive and bringing back those traditions of 
gathering acorns, processing them through the leaching, and then making sure that the kids in the school through the Farm to School project, which was a spinoff from the original food security project, that the kids all had opportunities to taste the various native foods so that they became more familiar and could could reconnect with the, the land in a way that, that's natural for our people. There was so many different objectives that were that so very important leading into the education piece, so which I just told you already a little about, that the Department of Education recognized the efficacy of t- using a, a child's culture and 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 respecting it enough to use that as the basis for teaching science and math and literature. So English language, if you learn your, your, your uh, native language, you have to understand word placings, what, what are adjectives, what are nouns, all of those pieces so that you can understand your own language or your original language so that you can learn it. That translates into much better performance in in English language arts. So we were awarded then a four-year grant to bring that education into the schools, and it was tremendously effective. It's an interesting thing, I think, you know, when I think about our our culture is very... um, so respecting elders, as Ashley so pointed out right from the beginning, you know, Laverne Glaze. So also my relation, and I'm so I'm so proud to be one of her own relations. Just respecting our elders and the traditional knowledge is a major part of our of our culture. And I don't think that is in the Western world as much. What there is, though, what we do have together is this respect and understanding of our youth and how investing in our youth is maybe perhaps one of the most important things that we could do with our lives. If we can respect our elders and have our elders connect with the youth and pass on to them that information, those that intergenerational knowledge to transfer that in a way that's that's mutually beneficial, it's going to help everyone. And I'm so glad that for the citizen science paper, but this is a, a an absolutely perfect combination of of our cultures in respecting the youth, empowering our youth, giving them the tools that they need to translate what they know to other cultures and peoples. I would love to add here, I think this is the perfect example that Lisa has given as to why this youth project had the impact that it had because it wasn't set aside as just some separate little project. It was integral and integrated with this larger food security project that Lisa and you know Grant and others were running for the entire tribe. And so it was able to come in, contribute, and then you know be part of all the other wonderful things that the tribe was already doing. So it just magnified the importance of that relationship of the youth working with elders, working with people who work for the tribe, working with other community members, and being able to see that it all is part of a whole, right? That is what's so impressive about this work that the, the tribe and the university and the youth have been able to do together. I wholeheartedly agree. I do know that I remember several times during our trips and going to other tribes and youth that 
we did influence an impact on them to where they started their own youth programs or they wanted to learn more about their own culture. So it wasn't just us learning about our culture. We were actually opening the doors for other youth to start learning about their own culture and see what is on going on in their own community. Yeah, I love that. And Ashley, you were one of the youth leaders. And as we had spoke previous to recording this, you were talking about the success of this program, really relying on youth grasping their power. Can you talk a little bit more about your experience as a youth leader and being involved in this project? This project really did open my eyes to what was going on in the community and why so many of my family members would have diabetes or would have so many things. And it was just the lack of pure knowledge on to what was a better source, what traditionally would have been a better dinner rather than just going to the store and getting some fast food. And it just wholeheartedly was just, we needed to learn and to be able to have this project to open my eyes and so many other family members and community members eyes. It was, it was just truly amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. And it sounds like this youth piece was as you mentioned, helping you grow, but then also, you know, you're sharing and giving, and it's this give and take of knowledge with your own community, with other youth and with your elders. And we just don't have those relational pieces in a lot of Western culture. And I think it's really, really powerful and just goes to show how important these relationships are and that they're maintained. So thank you so much. (laughs) As we just wrap up, this conversation, I remember you all are saying that based on the successful initiative, you're continuing to develop locally powered solutions and research that benefits both the community and the university. And I think we've definitely talked about this already, but I just wanted to say that that's it's so exciting and really empowering to see the recognition of this cultural knowledge and growing youth and giving them the skills to be successful in research and beyond. And really a pleasure to chat with you all. And I would have never guessed, Ashley, that you were one of the shy, shy researchers <laughs> because you're just, you're so confident. And it's, it's such a, a pleasure to hear your perspective and just all the things that you've learned from engaging in this project. Do you have any closing thoughts before we finish up the episode? I just, I really want to just leave it on a note of how much involvement with the youth, how it is definitely a huge aspect. And like I said, children are natural scientists. So why not use them to do what adults wouldn't be able to figure out or be able to openly do because of just pure nerves or everything? And I, I would like to, you know, we, we started out by dedicating this award and this interview to Grant Gilkison, and I'd like to just end with saying his impact on all of us continues. And, you know, our newest work actually came about because of Grant. We are continuing food security research now in a project around Yurok food security because Grant said, let's do what we did in this project and let's keep going. And, you know, we got a grant to try to keep this going. And as we said, we were sad when he passed away last year, but he's made a lasting impact. And this is going beyond just one project. And so we just want to thank Grant to say how much his work 
is continuing beyond him. Thank you, Catherine Kim, Lisa Moorhead Hillman, and Ashley Michael for joining us today. And thank you all for listening in. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.